And we're going to be reading uh, several verses that are actually mirrored in our central study this morning, which is in the book of Hebrews. And we've been able to put those verses up on the screen for you so that you can follow along. We're going to be reading verses uh, 6 through 11 of Psalm 95. And can I invite you? Uh, Dean's reminding me. Anybody need a Bible? If you need a Bible, just slip up your hand. They would love to see to it that you're able to follow along. Uh, right here, Dean, there's one in front. With your eyes as well as your ears. And if for some reason you need a Bible, don't have a Bible at home, please take that Bible and receive it as a gift from the Lord. Uh, would you stand with me, please, for the reading of God's Word? I'll begin with verse 6. If you would read verse 7 and so forth, and we'll read all the way to the end of the psalm. Psalm 95, verse 6, reads this way. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. Verse 7. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. For 40 years I was grieved with that generation, and I said, it is a people who go astray in their hearts, and they do not know my ways. Lord, we thank you this morning that you have given to us this love letter, this record of your encounter with mankind and with mankind's encounter with you. You have given us your word. And Lord, as we're before it this morning, be it familiar, uh, be it a bit unfamiliar, we ask that by the Holy Spirit you would speak to each one of us, we pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. Please be seated. And while you have your Bible in your hand, if you would now turn to the right to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. I want to make sure we welcome those of you who are watching at home, perhaps unable to get out of your house today and decided to take uh, us into your living room. We're very honored to do that and pray that the Lord will bless you as well. As we come to this portion of the third chapter of Hebrews, uh, we want to remind ourselves that Hebrews is not only about the superiority of Jesus Christ, but Hebrews is also a book of warning to the body of Christ, those that call themselves Christians, written particularly for the Jews that were entrenched in Judaism prior to Christ's coming who came to faith in Christ, believing him as the only begotten Son of God and as their Messiah, received the forgiveness of God through Christ and began to walk as believers, having stepped out of Judaism, and yet were always challenged to turn back to the old covenant. And so... Though the warnings were, if we would say, uh, directly in the year that they were written and given to Jewish Christians, we know that the word of God is uh, alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And so the word of God 
moves forward to now warn the Christian or the believer in every sect of life. If you have ever taken the highway out of Valley Springs and gone up 88 to Liberty Road and gone down Liberty over to Highway 99, as you take the entrance onto the freeway there at Highway 99, there's also right next door to it an exit. And posted very clearly at the onset of that freeway exit is a warning sign. Says, don't enter going the wrong way. And the warning is intended to inform, to warn, and to save lives. And with that same mindset, the book of Hebrews offers these warnings. Some have observed at least five throughout the book. Others have observed seven. And this morning we come to the second clear warning within the book itself in the passage in which we are going to be studying probably for a couple of weeks. I've entitled this one, two, three-part series, A Warning Against Unbelief, because the author is making it clear in verses 7 through 19 to the reader, to the one who is a believer, the warning against uh, ignoring the voice of the Holy Spirit, a warning against hardening your heart or the heart against God and the warning to not believe in what he has said. So as we've come to verse 7, we find that this particular warning starts with a word, the fourth use of a word used 28 times, I mentioned it last week, the word therefore. Because of this, then that, in other words. And the author, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uses this word, therefore, as I said, 28 times through the book of Hebrews because so much of, of, a, of a correct theological understanding of who God is how God works in the life of mankind, whom God has sent to save man from an eternal abyss, builds upon one another throughout this book. It is the fourth time we come to the word therefore. It is the second warning in the book. And the reader is to be reminded every time he or she, you or I, see that word, therefore, what is it therefore? It is there to remind us, working backwards, that the believer is the dwelling place of God. That God has taken up residence in the life, the heart, the house, whose house you are. Chapter 3, verse 5. That the believer is to fix their attention upon the apostle and high priest of their confession. Chapter 3 verse 1. That Christ himself is a merciful and faithful high priest making an atonement or rather propitiation for the sins of the people. Chapter 2 verse 17. That he, because he himself likewise shared in the same, he is able to give aid to those who are tempted. Chapter 2, verse 18. That we don't see everything, though he made all things, we don't see everything put under his feet right at this moment in this dispensation in which we live. But we do see Jesus as the captain of our salvation crowned with glory and honor, made perfect through sufferings. Chapter 2, verse 10. 
that he is indeed superior to Moses. Chapter 3, verse 1. He is indeed superior to angels. Chapter 1, verse 4. And he is indeed superior to the prophets. Chapter 1, verse 1. Therefore, verse 7, the first part, read it with me. As the Holy Spirit says, today, if you will hear his voice. Isn't that amazing? The author inserts what we know to be written in the 95th Psalm, verbatim. And yet he pulls it forward into this new covenant era, the covenant of God's grace. What we didn't read in Psalm 95 is that the psalmist talks about, come, let us uh, sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise. Let us shout unto the Lord with joy and give thanksgiving. Let us come into his courts with praise that he is the great king. He is uh, the one that we are to worship and to bow down to. And so interestingly enough, as the author of this particular portion of scripture says, uh, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, in other words, speaking to that Hebrew who was entrenched in Judaism, having come to faith in Christ, now as a believer, says that was written back then, but it, it applies today. That today is the day of salvation. Ecclesiastes 9.10 tells us there's no wisdom going to the grave. You, can't, you won't know anything in the grave. Isaiah 55.6, seek the Lord while he may be found. James chapter 4 tells us you don't know what tomorrow's going to bring, whether you go here, whether you will go there, if the Lord wills it. So the author is reminding the reader, and by way of the work of the Spirit of God reminding you and I that the Holy Spirit speaks. Notice it says, as the Holy Spirit says. The third person of the triune Godhead, the Holy Spirit is speaking. Maybe he was speaking to some of you while you were engaged in worship. And as you began to put your attention upon the Lord, God began to just speak to your heart about some of the issues of your life. And you're wondering, what, what is that? Why is my mind on that? And God's seeking to impress upon you something he, he wants you to know of himself and wants you to understand about yourself and wants you to hear. Can you hear his voice? That's the overarching clarion call of this portion. Can you hear the voice of the Holy Spirit? 2 Peter 1.21 tells us that holy men of God were wrote down as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, that the scripture is uh, inspired. Written by God himself. And so what is the Holy Spirit saying? What is the Holy Spirit saying to the Jewish Christian, the Hebrew believer, who's wrestling with is is faith in the efficient blood of Jesus Christ enough for me to be assured of without any doubt of my salvation and of my place in heaven? Many of us this morning, and some of you who may be watching at home, if you've been coming to church for any length of time, it's like, oh, this is a given. I don't ever doubt that. 
That's not a, a, a problem in my mind. Maybe it's not a problem in your mind. Are you certain this hour, if you walked out of this church, got into a car, tried to cross the road, and boom, God forbid, immediately your life is put in jeopardy. Do you know you're going to heaven? Because if you do, that's, that's enough reason to walk in confidence and joy. And it is also enough reason to pay more earnest heed to the things that we have heard, as we saw in uh, chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. The first warning is to not drift away. And so here's what the Holy Spirit is saying then and now. Are you ready? You know, I don't know if I can ever hear the voice of God. You can hear his voice right here, right now. Hear him say, do not harden your heart. And then the Holy Spirit gives an example, or a better word would be he cites a historic event in which the people of God who were not to have a hard heart did harden their heart. Some of you have been reading your Bible for years, are going to know this backwards and forward. To some of us, it might be a little bit new. But either way, it's a beautiful sighting of an event to bring application to the warning of hardening our heart against the voice of the Holy Spirit. He cites, notice verse 8, Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of trial, in the wilderness, verse 9, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works 40 years. Almost verbatim of Psalm 95, altered just a bit, but he cites a particular event. Do you know what event he cites? And we're going to spend some of our time in the citing of this event because it has such clear application to what it means to you and I about hardening your heart against God. Now, you might say this morning, well, how preposterous, maybe a strong word, uh, how unthinkable, how, um, how wrong would that be for me to harden my heart against God? And yet, are we not all capable of it? At any given moment, on any given day, when God might speak to you about something in your life or something going on around your life or something that he wants you to do in this life, are we not all capable of going, uh, excuse the illustration, la, 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 la. We're all capable of it. I'm capable of it. And so the author cites for us an event that took place in the people of God thousands of years earlier. Turn with me to the left to Numbers chapter 21. Numbers chapter 21. And as you're turning there, I will preface that Numbers chapter 21 become, comes to us right after Numbers chapter 20. Now, I want us to read together in just a moment some of the verses in chapter 21, but I want also to remind us or preface what we're about to read with what took place in Numbers chapter 20. In Numbers chapter 20, it's a record of the people of Israel having had traveled for some 40 years, 
following Moses, their leader, through the wilderness, having gone around and around until the unbelieving generation died off. And a new generation was raised up. The generation that God would intend to now end their wanderings and take them into Canaan or Canaan land. And yet their wandering was not quite over in chapter 20. And we find in chapter 20 that they complained. They got thirsty. They were in the desert. And what happened several times throughout their wanderings is that they began to to blame and get angry with Moses, their leader, and Aaron, the priest, and with God. You brought us all the way out here for us to die. We need water. You remember the account. And so Moses goes to God and he says, God, help, they need water. And God speaks to Moses and says, Moses, see the rod that is in your hand? And he tells Moses, he says, I want you to speak to the rock. He didn't tell him to use the rod this time. At the end of their wanderings, he said, speak to the rock, and the rock will bring forth water. And Moses gets up from his encounter with the Lord, and he goes out before the people, and and after 40 years of listening to their complaints and accusations, Moses lost it. He got angry with them and he gave them a picture that God was angry with them when at at the moment in chapter 20, God has yet not expressed his anger. And Moses says to the people, he says, you rebels, must we always bring water from this rock? And he strikes the rock. Remember the account? Numbers chapter 20. And yes, the rock gave forth water and the people did drink and they were satisfied and they stopped complaining for a minute. But because Moses had inaccurately portrayed the heart of God to his people and because Moses had specifically disobeyed God's order to speak to the rock, God then told Moses, you won't take this people into the land. A very severe consequence, but it was an even more severe foreshadowing in that the rock had already been struck once before in their history. This time, God wanted Moses to speak to the rock because it was a foreshadowing of the way in which mankind would only need to speak to the rock of their salvation, Jesus Christ. That Jesus would only be smitten once. And then rise on our behalf. And that picture was marred. If you, if you have a, a piece of clay on the wheel and, and it's coming out perfect and all of a sudden you, you bend it wrong or there's an imperfection, it's marred and that picture was marred by Moses. And so Mo- Moses' consequence was to not take the people into the land. Although the people drank, they did drink, they were satisfied. And now chapter 21. And what do we read in chapter 21? Verse 1. The king of Arad, the Canaanite who dwelt in the south, heard that Israel was coming on the road to Athrin. And then he fought against Israel and took some of them prisoners. Okay, so they're about to end their wanderings. They're about to go into the land. And and here's this enemy that comes against them. Some of them fall and are taken prisoner. And the rest of the congregation is now uh, impacted by some of their loved ones have been taken. And so, verse 2, Israel made a vow to the Lord. Notice, this same God that they complain about, This same God that that they questioned Moses, why did you bring us out here into this wilderness to die? 
Now, because there's a hardship personally, it's hit the living room of their experience. It's like, okay, let's make a vow. And what do they vow? They vow, if you will indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. In other words, give us back those who are prisoners and we'll wipe them out. Lord, if you're, if you're our God, please give us back our prisoners and we'll just destroy these enemies that you've told us we're going to have to destroy. And what do we read in verse 3? And the Lord listened. Look at that. You might want to underline that. Put your name there. The Lord listened. He hears you and me when we cry out. He doesn't try and necessarily justify the, the plea. Well, if, you know, if you'd only been more obedient earlier on in the, in the route here, we wouldn't be going through it. No, he, just, he listened, took it at face value. It says he listened to the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites, and they utterly destroyed them and their cities. So the name of that place was called Hormah. Saints, I can't. I can't underscore it enough. I hope you spend time in your Old Testament. I hope you get as familiar with it as you would your New Testament. In our uh, midweek study, someone asked the question, well, you know, don't we get closer to God by obeying the commands in the Old Testament? And it was a great discussion. I mean, what we walked away with is that absolutely we get closer to God through obedience. But if you recall what Paul said in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, as it relates to everything written in the Old Testament, he said, all of that is written for our learning. So, no, we are not under the law of God. It's not that to read the Old Testament in order to find the jot and the tittle of what we're to do and not do in order to have a relationship with God. But the principles throughout the Old Testament still apply in the life of the believer, you and I. Beautiful picture here. What do we see? We see a people in trouble saying, Lord, if you will, then we will. And we see God listening and God being faithful. And we see them being faithful because they made a vow. But notice what takes place in verse 4 because it's so applicable. Oh my goodness. Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom and the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. Well, that's a big verse. should underline that verse. They continued their journey. Remember, they're still, they're still kind of going around, and God's going to take them into the, the land soon. But as they're journeying, the soul of the people gets discouraged on the way. Have you ever been discouraged along the way? On the route in which God has given you to travel? On this pathway in which is a path that is part and parcel to choices you have made in life? A man makes his plans, but the Lord directs his steps. Have you ever become discouraged along the way? Oh, come now. Everybody would say yes, right? Probably no one in this room would say, no, never discouraged, always up. God is good, God is good, God is good. Okay, okay. Yes, God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. But discouragement is a real thing. God knows that. It's what we do with discouragement. As a believer, as a son or a daughter of the king, it's what we do with it. Notice what they did with it. Verse 5. And the, speak, the people spoke against 
God and Moses. What are you doing? This is a long journey. Not sure I signed up for this part, God. Not sure I'm liking you right now. I'm not feeling the love. And, you know, this leader you gave us, this Moses guy, I'm definitely not liking him right now. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water. Remember what Egypt was like? Remember? You've got to read it. You've, you watched Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments too many times. It was horrible. It was slave labor. You think BLM has a problem today. It was downright physical. People were dying to erect the pyramids. God's people had been placed into bondage for over 430 years. And God heard their cry, Oh Lord, will you deliver us from this bondage? And God sends a deliverer. And that deliverer leads them out of bondage. Would we, would any, you know, what did uh, John say in his epistles? He who is forgiven much loves much. And I know that probably in the sound of my voice, maybe on the visual screen or anybody here in this room, maybe you came from a very, you know, a clean background. Your families were Christians. Your heritage is there. And there wasn't a lot of, you know, um, what we would call overt, horrible sin in your life. And you always remember the time in your life you go into Sunday school where God was God and yes, you believed in Jesus and somewhere in there you, you began a personal relationship and so you're walking with the Lord and you have been for many years and so you, you get it. Maybe you would never say to him, why did you save me? But on the other side of that scale, someone who was locked into the depths of a sinful life. Someone who was lost in dysfunctional living, alcoholism, substance abuse, illicit relationships, breaking laws, wayward, wayward, wayward person who in his grace, maybe that's none of you, but I'll testify today, in his grace, he reached down and said, child, I love you and I sent my son to die for you. And that individual, whoever that is, all of a sudden recognizes that apart from, apart from God, they are eternally lost and they, they come to a place of faith in Christ. Would such a person turn to that same God and when life gets a little hard or... Life can get real hard. I mean, death and dying and tears, that's not small stuff, but it's still this life. Would that person turn to that same God and go, why did you save me? I'm not happy with this hardship. (coughs) Would you? That's what they're doing. Verse 5. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food or water. In other words, my physical needs aren't being satisfied, Lord. My physical needs, our physical needs of the people, you're not, come on, come on. A little water, a little food, God. Come on, you promised to do it. The line that kills me here and that broke the heart of God is the last statement. Do you see it? And our soul loathes 
this worthless bread. Ooh. Some of you who go, oh, know the depth of that statement. Do you know what that statement is saying? Remember what the bread in the wilderness was? It was called manna. And why did God give it? Because they were hungry. How long did God provide it? 40 years. What did Jesus say? He said, I am that bread that cometh down from heaven. I am the bread of life. What they were saying is, God, we loathe, we hate, we abhor this worthless son of yours. God knew what the picture was. God the son knew he was the bread of life. Do you see the, the imagery, the connection? I mean, that, that's not foreign from the New Testament. That is the New Testament spoken in the Old. We, we hate this worthless bread. This son of yours is worthless, in other words. And that brought a consequence. Notice the consequence. Verse 6, the Lord sent fiery... You guys probably went ahead and read ahead so that you'd know the story. Okay, verse 6, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people and many of the people of Israel died. Okay, now time out. There are atheists and unbelievers and even the skeptics that would say, what kind of God is it that you believe in and follow that would do something like that to his own people? He would send fiery serpents and they begin to question, you know, did God really send serpents? I mean, this is all fairy tale stuff. Wait a minute. It, it's the word of God. It's inerrant. It's true. It's the final authority of faith and practice in the life of the believer. And so I don't question it at all that God is big enough to send serpents to bite his people because he has a reason. What's his reason? In essence, they were rejecting his salvation when they said, we loathe this worthless bread. Christ isn't even in the picture yet, but he is there in foreshadow. And so... The serpent, of course, similar to that same serpent in the garden who whispered in the ear of Eve, Eve, has God really said, God sends these serpents and some of the people die. Someone would say, what kind of God? And my answer would be, and hopefully your answer would be as a believer, a God who demands a consequence for sin. Okay, that's the heavy way to put it. Let's say this. A father who loves his child so much that he would discipline them. Oh, hallelujah. Yeah. Do you know what a child without discipline looks like? Anybody here this morning? You watching at home? Anybody here ever seen a child that's undisciplined? Oh, not a pretty picture. Not a pretty picture. A child with no discipline? A child that does not obey their parent? Don't you go across that line. I said, don't go across that line or there'll be a consequence. I said no. Come here. I love you enough to discipline you when you disobey. <laughs> Do you know that? Yes. 
Will you cross that line again? No. Okay. Let's get on with our day. That's all this is. I mean, don't overreact. Don't over manipulate it. It's a loving father disciplining children who are willfully disobeying. And he gives the solution. Because he knew that if their lives became in jeopardy of living because of the consequence of their choice to loathe the very thing that he has given them to sustain them, that maybe that's what would reckon their heart to now realize we've sinned. We've gone against him. And therefore, ah, there's that word again, verse 7, therefore the people came to Moses and said, do you see it? It's beautiful. We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he takes away the serpents from us So Moses prayed for the people. That verse is really big too. If you ever do any kind of um, inductive Bible study, it's like who, what, where, why. You parse out words, you you investigate it. But do you notice something there that's so beautiful is that their heart now is convicted of the wrong. And so they turn and they recognize we've sinned Against who? Against the Lord. That's the primary thing is we've sinned against God. We've willfully gone against his great love and plan for our lives. And they go, they recognize that they've sinned against Moses, the appointed leader of this motley crew. And then, then what do they do? They ask Ask God, please pray for us that he'll take away this consequence. I thought that was interesting. Not not pray to the Lord that we'll, we'll fully walk with him. Not pray to the Lord that we'll will really serve him and and, and go through this journey in in the way that he desires us to. Uh, Ask him to take the serpents away. And so Moses prays for the people. And here again, grace. Here's grace. Is God not a gracious God? Is God not the God of second, third, fourth, fifth chances? I mean... Verse 8, then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and it shall be that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it shall live. Beautiful of God. Notice who's sovereign here. They're saying, have him take the serpents away. And God says, no, 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 no. We're not removing the consequence. But what I will do is I will give you a solution to your sin in the midst of the experience. I'm not going to remove the consequence. I'm not going to take away the fact that there is consequence for willful disobedience and the rejection of the very thing that I've given you to sustain you in life. But what I will do is give you a solution in the middle of that so that you can make a choice again. And notice what he does. He says, Take one of the serpents and put it on a pole and lift it up and have the people look. at All they have to do is look. They didn't have to do five Hail Marys. They didn't have to do three, you know, sit-ups. They didn't have to go find an animal and make a sacrifice. All they had to do was look upon the pole, the serpent on the pole. 
and they'll live if they're bitten. Why is that important? Verse 9, so Moses made a bronze serpent. I think this uh, emblem is not still used in the medical field, right? It's altered a little bit, but it's a, a, a bronze serpent on a pole, and it's indicative of our uh, medical field. Then Moses made a bronze serpent, and he put it on a pole, and so it was that if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. And we're going to stop it right there this morning, because what... Do you see the imagery that God is still involved in doing all throughout the Old Testament? Have you ever read that account? Did you ever open that account like that and unpack it in your life like that? Because what did Jesus say? You could all, you could all repeat this verse verbatim. Most of you, if you know the Lord this morning, uh, John 3.16 says, let's say it. For God so loved the world that Amen. Do you know what comes before it and after it? Turn to John, chapter 3. Verse 14. John 3.14, before you get to 3.16, says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. That everyone bitten by sin... And we know that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That anyone bitten by sin, all they have to do is look to the one who was placed upon the cross. Remember when they, you've probably seen films that depict this, but it's in the scripture and it's in historical accounts that the, the act of crucifixion was laying the individual down on a pole with cross members, some, some were flat out poles where the hands would go this way, others were, had cross members. They would lay the pole down, then lay the individual down on that, on that pole, and they would, boom, pound their spikes right through the wrist. Boom, through the other wrist. Put the feet on top of the other, and boom, through that, those feet, ouch. As if that wasn't enough, he was already bloody from, from whips and beaten. And, and as Isaiah tells us, beyond recognition. But then the, the Roman soldiers would ha typically, ha they'd have a, a, a rope out there and three or four here. And they would start pulling. they lift up, lift up. Do you see that? Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted. He's talking about when they raised the cross and it would fall into the prepared hole. <clears throat> like that. I don't think there is any better way but to illustrate it. And what God was saying then he's saying today. He's faithful. He hears you when you're discouraged. There is a consequence for sin. But there's a solution as well. It's called his grace. And so don't Harden your heart as they did then. The Holy Spirit says, Don't 
harden your heart toward God. That's, that's the message today. And what is it? Just don't not believe what he has said. Period. And maybe this morning you came and you had some doubts. Maybe not. Maybe this morning this passage and theme speaks to you. Maybe not. But maybe you know someone that it would. As we close in prayer, if it's to you, I want you to just ask the Lord to search your heart and soften it. And if it's for someone else that you think of, pray for them as we close with a word of prayer and a song. I invite the team to come up. church Lord we are of course aware that the book of Hebrews and in its totality really has been written to grow or rather mature uh, your church that there are deep and powerful and wonderful and beautiful things uh, in this text. And so one of them has been brought to us this hour, Lord, that you remind us and you warn us not to harden our heart. And Lord, this morning, you know everyone here, you know everyone watching. You know me, you know us all. And that at times we can be inclined to not harden, to harden our heart rather. We ask you by your spirit to work in us today. Find us willing. to allow you to teach us, to teach us your ways, that we might praise you all the days of our life. And we just simply ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.